0: So this morning we're going to be looking at Psalms chapter 92. So if you find that in your Bibles or if you don't own a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own one, I encourage you to take that with you and uh, don't use it as a dust collector. Read the thing. It'll change your life. So Psalm chapter 92, it starts out with a few words of introduc- introduction. It says it's a psalm, and it's a song for the Sabbath. So it identifies the type of expression. There's songs, or psalms, prayers. A few weeks ago, Bob talked about a mass skill, which is a psalm for teaching wisdom. Some are identified as a testimony. And this one is a psalm. So other psalms are designated for specific occasions. Some psalms were for memorial offerings, such as Psalm chapter 70. Others were for giving of thanks, such as Psalm chapter 100. Some psalms are prayers when afflicted, Psalm chapter, like Psalm 102. Some, were sung, some psalms were to be sung on the way up to Jerusalem for special festivals, such as the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. This psalm that we're going to be looking at today is to be sung on the Sabbath day, and it starts like this. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in your morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. So we're not going to read through the entire psalm in one shot, but we're going to be breaking it up and I'll be explaining it you as we go. So verse 1 says, it is good to give thanks. Exercising an attitude of thankfulness does several things for us. It is an act of obedience since it's commanded. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will for us that we develop an attitude of thankfulness. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20 says much the same thing when Paul says to the Ephesians, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that giving thanks and developing a thankful attitude as an act of obedience is one aspect that makes it good. And there are a couple more. Giving thanks is an act of humility since giving thanks acknowledges that the things or abilities that we have come from somebody else. A few weeks ago I mentioned this verse in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 7. Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, "'For who makes you different from one another? "'And what do you have that you did not receive?' I want to just stop there. "'What do you have that you didn't receive? "'You and I don't have anything that we didn't already, "'that is not already supplied to us by God. "'The skills or abilities we have, even if we learn them, "'it's God that gave us the skills and abilities.'" So when we are thankful, it acknowledges God's input in our lives in that way. Giving thanks is also a demonstration of our dependence on God, since it acknowledges that He is the one who provides for our needs. How can we not be thankful to the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? In the same breath that the psalmist tells us to give thanks, He also exhorts us to give praise, right? It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Singing praises helps us to take our eyes off ourselves and instead put our focus on God. Colossians 3 verse 2 tells us to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And there are a number of other passages that tell us to look to Jesus or consider Him. Those are in Hebrews. And to look forward to, with great patience and anticipation, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that in Titus. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in order to praise the Lord to the best of our ability... We need to keep our focus on Him. When we are looking to Jesus and setting our minds on things above, this isn't just admiring paintings of Jesus or having passing thoughts about God in heaven. This is a focused, earnest desire to actively seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Friends, this is why it's so important that we sing songs that are theologically accurate. And for the children in the audience, that means that it's important for us to sing songs that tell the truth about what God says and what God does. Singing correct theology in our music is important because you're more likely to to remember the songs that we sang today through the week. Most of you are equally likely to forget most of what I have to say today before you've left the building. One faithful godly preacher was quoted as saying something like this, that he would prepare throughout the week, preach his guts out on Sunday morning, the congregation would catch it in a thimble and spill it in the foyer on the way out. And it's true, and I've done it, and so have you, so we can laugh together at it. But how do we apply this idea? Well, here's one illustration of how to worship through Scripture and song. I don't know when I started doing this, but for years I've made a practice of thinking of Scripture that fits with the words of the songs that we're singing. So as I'm singing, I try to think of a Bible verse that fits with the words, and I don't always have a Bible verse for every line or for every song, but often that's what I'm trying to do. Sometimes it just fits with the theme of the song. And it's enriched my worship in two ways. First of all, it focuses my mind on the Word of God, and second of all, it reinforces the truths that we're singing. For example, and the worship team didn't know this, but this was an example that I was going to use. We sing, oh, praise the name here from, here from time to time. We just sang it here this morning. And when we get to that last verse, he shall return in robes of white, invariably I go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. You don't have to read that now, but I encourage you to look that up later where Paul describes the rapture of the believers. And the joy and the hope and the anticipation of seeing Jesus face-to-face in that context moves me to tears more often than not. It happened again this morning. I can rarely sing the last line of of that song just for the joy of anticipating Jesus' face. There are other examples. For example, in the song, King of Kings, Uh, You may not recognize the title, but you'll recognize the words, in the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light. Uh, I won't sing the rest of it, but it's a good song. So in that first verse, I can think of half a dozen or more Scripture passages that draw my mind to different themes or different lines in that psalm. For example, I'm thinking of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, or the parable of the prodigal son right? Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 fits in there. Matthew 1 verse 23 fits. John 1 verse 1. Isaiah 53. You may have others, but those are just some that come to my mind, and not every time. But as I was thinking through that, those are the kinds of things that draw my mind to Scripture as I'm singing. The hymns that we sing are full of Scripture references if we stop and think about it as we're singing them. So it helps me to focus my worship on God, but it also helps me to sharpen my discernment. Because if the song does not line up with what Scripture says, then I need to examine why I'm singing something that is untrue. So this exercise helps me to focus on what I'm singing and reminds me of the truth of God as I'm singing it. And for me, this is part of what makes it good to give thanks and praise to God. It is good to sing. So it is good to give thanks. It is good to th- sing praises. A third thing that it is good to do is to declare the works of God. We see that in verse 2. And this is especially important to tell our children and our grandchildren. Moses tells this to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. I'm just going to stop there for just a second before I finish that passage. And what had the children of Israel seen? Think through this for just a minute. In Deuteronomy, this is kind of the second giving of the law. So Moses is telling the children of those who came out, who were the first generation to come out of Egypt, to remember what they'd seen. Remember what God has done for you in your life, right? Right? What had they seen? Many of them had seen the parting of the Red Sea. Most of them had experienced God's provision of manna. They had seen God's deliverance from some of their enemies, not all yet, but some of them for sure. They had seen the provision of quail. They had seen the water coming out of the rock. Moses is telling them, don't forget these things. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Tell the next generation. And he says that again a couple chapters later in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 7. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And that doesn't mean just four occasions that you tell your children about what God has done for you. This is a matter of when you're sitting down and when you're rising. Okay, when is that? Most of the time, either you're sitting down or you're standing up, okay? That's all the time. Or when you're in your house or when you walk by the way. Either we're in our houses or we're somewhere else, right? Use the opportunities you have to tell your children or tell the next generation or tell somebody that you're mentoring about the goodness of God and how good that is. says, to declare your faithfulness in the morning and your faith, your, loving, your love in the morning, your faithfulness by night. And this fits with what was just said in Deuteronomy in the morning or in the evening. That's not just two specific times when we relate the goodness of God, that's all the time. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. There's always something new to talk about when you're talking about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God in your life. It talks about his faithfulness by night. At the end of the day, aren't we in a mood to think about how the day has gone? Maybe, maybe you're not. I often am. How did my day go? What, what happened today? And we're te- we tend to be in a contemplative mood. How has the Lord demonstrated his faithfulness to you at the end of each day? Have you thanked and praised him for that? It's something to think about. When we make a habit of talking about and telling each other and others both the per- about the person and works of God, it reinforces those truths in our own minds. And this, in turn, helps us to keep looking to Jesus and helps us to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Verse 4 gives us the reason for the celebration that is the theme of this psalm. He talks about the physical creation. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. A number of weeks ago, Stan Troyer preached a great sermon on Psalm chapter 8 and went through a bunch of details on the incredible uh, details. And the sizes of the universe that we see. For example, many of you have heard Louis Giglio's uh, sermon on if the earth were a golf ball, then how big is the sun compared to the golf ball? I'm not going to go into details, but how many earths fit inside the sun? And then how many earths fit inside the next largest star? And how big is the universe? And how big is our God to call that into being and to hold it together by the word of his power. And at the same time, while we look through the telescope and we see the greatness of the universe, we look into the microscope on the other side of the table and we see the infinite detail of the so-called simple cell that was uh, talked about back when I and a number of you were in early school days. And science has proved that the simple cell is not actually that simple with all the tiny little motors and mechanisms and drives and replicators that are located in those little things and God holds them together too. So it's a celebration of the greatness of God. Verse 5 says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. And the, word, the Hebrew word for deep would be profound. Profound. We can see the same kind of a truth in Isaiah 55, verse 9, that state, but it states it in a contrasting sense where it says, for as, high, as the heavens are higher up than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and 10. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, the profound things of God. The thoughts of God are not something that we can uh, readily understand in our human nature. Shoot, we can't understand them at all, apart from the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because as humans that is outside of our realm, right? The thoughts of God are profound. They are above our understanding. When you have the opportunity to witness to the unsaved, keep this in mind, that unless the Holy Spirit grants them understanding, they are unable to grasp even the most basic spiritual principles in Scripture. That, is on, that only comes through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse six turns a bit of a corner in this psalm, and it's a celebration of the justice of God. So, in contrast to the great works and the deep thoughts of God that we just looked at, the psalmist considers two types of people identified by their character here: the stupid and the fool. The stupid is not a commonly used description in the Bible, and as from my uh, research it's only used five times in Scripture, and those five are only in Psalms and Proverbs. In each of those cases, it indicates a person who thinks or behaves more like an animal than than a reasoning human being. You could use the word to describe cattle and their behavior. And as I was uh, researching this, it reminded me of the chickens that we had earlier in the summer when they... Hang around the outside when it's pouring rain. You know, you little guys, you could get into your chicken coop and it would be drier. Oh, yeah, they're stupid. What can we say? These people are governed more by urges and instinct than by reason and wisdom. The fool is a much more commonly described trait. And the fool is identified in many passages in Proverbs as one who is morally deficient. He doesn't know or maybe does not discern right from wrong. He is wise in his own eyes, which we often describe as a know-it-all. He does not learn from the consequences of his mistakes, and he certainly doesn't learn from the consequences of the mistakes of others. Psalms 14 verse 1 and 53 verse 1 both identify this fool as one who denies the existence of God. You'll remember that. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And he chooses his life to live as though he will not be judged by God for his actions. So, armed with a better understanding of these two characters, we can take a look at the most important truth that they do not understand, their destiny. Verse 7 says, well, I'll start in verse 6. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. And so, verse 7 describes the wicked, the morally wrong, and the evildoers, those who exert themselves or they work hard at practicing rebellion against God. Sometimes it seems like those who rebel against God get all the advantages they get great jobs, cool vehicles, fancy toys exotic vacations, the happy families, and it looks like their lives are going great. They even live long lives, and it seems like they have peace when they die. And Psalm chapter 73 is a great meditation on that topic if you're looking for some follow-up material. What these people don't see, however, is that God has an unchanging law. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter how nice your family is or how much stuff you have accumulated or even how kind and generous a person is. Those features are meaningless if you're rebelling against the God of heaven and living according to your own desires. Our passage says that those who are morally wrong and practice wickedness as a habit are doomed to destruction forever. Friends, life is short and eternity is long. And those who reject Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf will have to pay the penalty for their own sins forever. They are already condemned to destruction, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.18. It's way too easy for us to read this passage quickly, justify ourselves in our own lifestyles, and compare ourselves to those who are more evil than ourselves. In a gathering this size, I guarantee that there are some who are living in rebellion against God. I don't know who you are, but God does. If you have not agreed with God that you're living in rebellion to His holy standard, confessed your sins and repented and asked for forgiveness, then your destiny and destruction is hell. It's not a threat, and those aren't my thoughts and opinions, but that's what the Bible says. Your only hope of escape is to believe that Jesus died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin and rose again to prove that that payment was complete. That is the only way to escape the eternal destruction that the psalmist is talking about here in verse 7. In contrast to that destruction forever that the wicked will experience, verse 8 talks about, brings our focus back to the Lord. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. The Lord, you'll see is in all capitals, talks about Yahweh, the I Am, the self-sufficient, self-sustaining, on-high one, who is exalted and elevated forever. The contrast can hardly be more dramatic. In verse 9, the psalmist goes on, based on the, the condition of the wicked, the contrast to the Lord who is on high. high. Verse 9 says, Behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. When Scripture repeats a word or phrase, it's not because the writer lost his place or the Holy Spirit stuttered. So when it says, for behold your enemies, two times, it's for emphasis. Sometimes it seems to us that those who are the enemies of the Lord are getting away with practicing their evil behavior. We see it all around us in our culture, in our government. They are flourishing as it talks about in verse seven. But verse nine here reminds us without qualification that those who make a practice of wickedness and rebellion against God will receive the just punishment for their sins. Verses 10 and 11 are a celebration of God's provision and deliverance in the psalmist's life. We've talked about the celebration of the praise of God, of the works of God, celebration of the justice of God. Now this is a celebration of the personal provision of God, by God. He praises the Lord for exalting his horn. And that is lifting up lifting him up to a position of strength or importance. Horn is sometimes like what we think of on a on a sheep or a goat, or more more rarely, uh, a cow or a bull or something like that. But in the Hebrew language, horn could also be a, a figurative reference for strength. Or power. And so when it says that God has exalted his horn, he's strengthened the psalmist above the strength of his enemies so that he could see their downfall in verse 11. As we move on to, chapter, to verse 12, we see the last celebration in this, series of, in this series, and it talks about the celebration of the sustaining work of God. In contrast to the destruction and judgment of that the wicked, these last four verses describe the long-term fruitfulness of the righteous. It says, "The righteous flourish like like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the house of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green." To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him it's interesting to consider that both the righteous and the wicked are compared to different plants in this psalm. The wicked are described as grass earlier on and as a plant that blossom that blooms in verse seven. then that word you don't see it blooming, but its flourish is the word in hot, dry climates. Grass is a short-lived plant. Sometimes it might only last for a day or two. Jesus talked about how the grass uh, springs up in the morning and by evening it's withered. And there are a lot of other passages that refer to the temporariness of grass. But in in contrast to that short lifespan, the righteous are compared with trees here in verse 12 and on. Um, Austin talked about this in Psalm 1, way back at the beginning of June, where the righteous is compared to a tree planted by the streams of water in Psalms 1 verse 3. Jeremiah 17 verses 7 and 8 say something very similar, where it says, Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and, does not, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Trees represent stability, longevity, and productivity in contrast to the grass, which is sometimes only a few hours in, the hot, in a hot, dry environment. The righteous is compared with two different trees, And I think it's an interesting thing to to consider here. It talks about palm trees and cedars. And we often think of palm trees as coconut palm trees like you'd see in California. But there's also another type of palm tree and that is a date palm. And from some research I did, a mature date palm tree can produce up to 200 pounds of fruit per season at its peak. And it might produce somewhat less up to 80 years of age, of the tree. And what the psalmist is emphasizing here is the long period of fruitful productivity. In the pattern of Hebrew poetry, the author creates a parallel concept by talking about the cedar trees. Cedar trees are known for their huge size and their resistance to rot and decay. If you've ever been to Vancouver Island and happened to drive through Cathedral Grove, some of those are big cedar trees. And it takes four grown adults to get their arms around them. And so the righteous are compared to that. The Bible often references the cedars of Lebanon, which must have been particularly spectacular in their size and strength. Verse 13 says that the righteous are pictured as being planted in the house of the Lord. Right in the temple. I don't know if there are actually trees planted in the temple courts, but there's a significant symbolism here that I want to draw your attention to. When it's planted, a tree is secure. It isn't going anywhere. And you're not going to pluck it up like a fistful of grass. In the same way, a righteous person is secure when they've placed their faith and trust in God. The psalmist says that they flourish in the courts of our God. And it's the same word to what is used back in verse 7, but with a significant difference here. While evildoers and the wicked seem to flourish, to spread out and grow and blossom, their end is eternal destruction. In contrast to that, The flourishing of the righteous is on an eternal bloom of godly character. Remember how the psalmist compared the flourishing of the wicked and how temporary that is, right? When the the righteous flourish, it is more like a tree. The location of their security is significant here. It's in the house of the Lord or in the courts of our God those who are followers of God are going to find their security and their strength to grow from being near to God and near to the people of God. I'm sure that we've all heard people say that they love God, but they don't go to church. We've seen that bumper sticker, Jesus, save me from your followers. Some people hold that mentality. But instead, they claim that their worship is on their own, often in nature. And that's great that they're worshiping God, in his creation, but I can assure you that they will not grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ outside of the influence of the body of Christ and of the faithful teaching of the Bible. There are reasons that Scripture commands us not to give up meeting together and gives us many ways that we are to uh, minister to one another. Any nature experience cannot replace regular Frequent fellowship, worship, and accountability with other believers who love God and love the Word of God. Verse 14 describes a couple more characteristics of the righteous. Like a palm tree that has a long-term season of fruitfulness, so those who love the Lord will continue to be fruitful and reflect godly behavior and perspective into old age. There is no point in a believer's life where they cease to reflect righteousness, that doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect, but it does mean that there's going to be a consistent pattern of obedience to Scripture, even though they may sin from time to time. The last verse of this psalm and the purpose of this continued fruitfulness is found in, the, in verse 15 here to continue to declare that the Lord is upright. This psalm begins by stating that it is good to declare the works of God, and it closes with a similar statement. Christian, the longer you follow the Lord, the greater your opportunity to reflect Him. One of the most beautiful things you can see is a Christian who has a long history of obedience to God and is continuing to declare the righteous works of God to those around them well into their older years. Psalms chapter 71, verses 17 and 18, enforces this where it says, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. A few chapters later, in Psalm 102, 18, the psalmist says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And in the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, you then, my child, Paul speaking to Timothy here, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me, so you can see the pattern already developing, right? Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, there's the next step, who will be able to teach others also. Keep preaching and teaching the Word of God to those who are coming behind you. While our experiences with God are certainly for our benefit and the strengthening of our personal faith, we lose an incredible opportunity if we do not pass those lessons on to our children and our grandchildren. Christian, if God has made a difference in your life, don't be ashamed to talk about it. Use the opportunities you have to talk to your wife, your children, your roommates, about what God has done in your life. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be embarrassing. Make a difference in the life of those around you by declaring what God has done in your life. It's awesome that James and Ann Siebert are here this morning and can demonstrate the difference that God has made in their life into the difference of a bunch of international students who in turn, if you caught it, are also making a difference in the lives that they are impacting. Thank you for your service. Don't think that it's just because you're young you can't influence others. And don't think that just because you're old that you're off the hook. Our passage today says that the righteous are still fruitful in their old age. Friends, advanced age is not a pass on spiritual laziness, and it's not a liability. If you have been faithfully following God, you have had years of experience to years of experience of God's faithfulness. The next generation and the next and the next need to hear about it so that they can grow in your faith and learn to trust the God as their rock just as you have. Let's pray. Lord, it is good for us to be here, to pause in the course of our week, to remember to be thankful, to praise you in this place with the rest of the saints, to declare your greatness. Lord, give us greater insight to understand the truth in your word and give us a greater desire to obey it and a greater desire to see your character reflected in our own lives. Heavenly Father, as we go from here, pray that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities that you give us to be a witness, to share the gospel and declare your word and your work with those who don't know. Give us the wisdom and the boldness to share what you've done in our lives so that we can preach and be your agents of grace in the lives of of others. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds that we might practice reflecting Christ and be fruitful, productive servants of yours. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.